Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. begin by asking a question this morning. Some of you may know what this word means, but I'm going to ask a question about a word. What does the word hubris mean? Hubris. Maybe you've heard that term before. Here's what it means. Excessive pride or an overconfidence in your abilities. Excessive pride or overconfidence in your abilities. Now, when you think about a world leader who had hubris, Adolf Hitler should rise to the top of your list. The Battle of Stalingrad and World War II was a turning point in that war when Hitler had the hubris, had the overconfidence to think that he could overtake Russia to the east. And Stalingrad was a central and important city because it was on the Volga River. And whoever controlled Stalingrad controlled the oil, controlled the flow of petroleum, both to Germany and to Russia. And so Hitler was very overconfident. He said, we can do this. And so he ordered Operation Barbarossa under the leadership of Friedrich Paulus and said, you will go in and you will take Russia. Now, at this time, the Nazis were running low on ammunition They were running low on their blitzkrieg techniques and their tactics. And so here's what happened. They were forced to go into the city of Stalingrad, and the conditions were very terrible. But the Russians were able to adapt to the cold. It was in November of 1943, and the temperatures were, and we can relate to this based upon this past week or last week, 40 below zero. And the Nazi force was bigger and stronger than the Russians, but the Russians took the Nazis unaware and trapped them in the city where they could not escape. So what it really turned into was urban warfare. Soldiers going from house to house, shooting. And so, by no means were the Nazis to retreat. Hitler said, we can do this. And so he would not allow them to retreat. They sent an air support to come in but that didn't help and so most of the nazis ended up either freezing to death many dying of starvation and so after two months of urban warfare and the freezing cold the nazis surrendered because hitler said we can do this but they couldn't so over ninety thousand prisoners of war were taken and this was the largest defeat by the nazis in their military history. Adolf Hitler's largest military defeat. And it didn't need to happen. Hitler could have ordered the retreat. Hitler did not have to send them into this dangerous situation. But Hitler was captured by hubris. He made an idol out of prideful 
independence. He thought Germany could do it. He thought he was in charge. He thought they were the most powerful army on the world, no matter what was really happening on the ground. Proverbs 16, 18 through 19 says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Now, Hitler may be an extreme example of hubris, of overconfidence, of pride. But I wonder if you and I today ever struggle with prideful independence. Are we ever captured by hubris? Do we ever have an inflated view of ourselves where we think we can do everything? We can do everything in our own power. I can, I can trust in my resources. I can trust in my intellect. I can trust in my abilities. I can trust in myself. You get overconfident and you begin to become boastful. Now, why do I bring up overconfidence, hubris, prideful independence? Because God is going to teach the Israelites, and particularly Gideon, a lesson in Judges chapter 7. Now, remember from last week, I know a lot of you weren't here, but last week, God's tender patience extends beyond our fragile faith. God had called Gideon to lead the Israelites against this huge army, the Midianites, that were like locusts. And Gideon was afraid. He was unsure of himself. He protested. He said, God, you got the wrong man. I'm from the least of the clans, and I'm the last of the sons. You don't want me to lead. And if you remember, God had to reassure him on multiple times, and Gideon sent out the fleece, the wool fleece twice, and God was gracious to strengthen his faith. And so God was patient. God was tender. God was faithful in helping Gideon. But God's not done yet with transforming this man Gideon, to be the leader that God wants him to be. So as we move into chapter 7, I want to give you what the main point is of this entire passage. If I could distill it down to a sentence, and I, I want you to think about this. What's this passage all about? It's simply this. God will confront our prideful independence to lead us to humble dependence. If you are pridefully independent... God's going to confront that. God's going to challenge that. And he's going to lead you to humble dependence. And that's what we're going to see in the life of Gideon and the Israelites. And we're going to see this unfold in three scenes, three sections before us. So if you've got a copy of God's Word with you this morning, let's look at verses 1 through 8, confronting prideful independence. Confronting prideful independence. Let's read this together. Gideon, I mean Gideon, Judges chapter 7. Gideon's in Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. Then Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, This people with you are too many. For me to give to the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever's fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, 
The people are still too many. Take them down to the water. I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I shall say, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below them in the valley. Now chapter 7, there's a lot going on, but verse 2 is the key to this entire chapter. Verse 2 is the key to this entire chapter. What does God say to Gideon? The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Israel, I don't want you to boast that you've got all the power, that you've got all the resources. That word boast, as Mickey actually said earlier in our time of confession, that word boast also can mean to glory, to display splendor, to have an unwarranted confidence and pride. It's actually used of how we're supposed to relate to God. Isaiah 60, verse 21, Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the works of my hands, that I might be glorified. That's the same Hebrew word used here for boast, that I might be glorified. In other words, Gideon, I don't want you to glorify yourself. I don't want you to have a prideful independence. Instead, I want you to have a humble dependence. And the ESV translates that little preposition very accurately. As I went back and looked at the original language, verse 2, it says, Lest they boast over me, literally above God. To boast over God, to think that you're better than God, to think that you're above God. Deuteronomy 8, 17 through 19, God gives a warning to the Israelites back then. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. That he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. My own hand. Boast in my strength. I wonder if you're tempted with that same temptation to trust in your ability, your power, to take credit for everything that happens. A prideful independence as opposed to a humble dependence one of my favorite passages of scripture is in john chapter 3 when the disciples are coming to jesus and saying hey jesus everybody's going to john the baptist are you upset about that and then um i'm sorry everybody's going to john the baptist and saying everybody's going i got that wrong cross out what i just said (laughs) edit that delete that from your memory john the baptist's Disciples were coming to John the Baptist and saying, everybody's going to Jesus. Aren't you upset that you're losing all your followers? 
because everybody's not coming to you anymore, John the Baptist, to be baptized. They're going to Jesus. And John the Baptist says something in John 3.27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You can't receive one thing unless God gives it to you. Everything you have is a gift from Almighty God. And that's exactly what God told to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Do you boast in your weakness? Are you dependent? Now, what's God going to do? In verse 4, God says he's going to test Israel. It's a metallurgical word to refine as in iron, iron ore, like a smelting process to remove the impurities. And God often refines our faith to make us more dependent upon Him. And this refining process can oftentimes be painful through trials and suffering. James 1, 2-4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. God's going to test our faith by taking us through trials. 1 Peter 1, 6-7, And this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Prideful independence is an impurity that needs to be taken out of your life. Like the dross that rises to the top that leaves the pure gold, God's going to refine you to get those impurities out of your life. Because the temptation is always for us to trust in ourselves, to glorify ourselves, to boast in ourselves. So this army starts with 32,000 men. 32,000 men. And Gideon is told, if these guys want to leave, let them leave. If they're afraid, let them leave. And so how many leave? 22,000 left. A lot of afraid guys. I don't want to fight these these Midianites. So there's 10,000 left. And God says, that's way too many. 10,000, that's way too many. So here's how I'm going to test the men. Go down to the water and drink. Okay, now... There's, there's two ways to drink water, okay? One way to drink water is you take and you scoop up the water and you, you scoop it in your hand and you lap it like a dog, okay? That's one way to do it. The other way is just to kneel down and just go for it <laughs> right in the water, okay? And there's a lot of a big deal about the water and the drinking, and some scholars have said, well, it was the ones who, were, who cupped it up, they were looking both ways, they were more alert, and the other ones that knelt down, they weren't that brave. You're missing the forest for the trees. The, the text does not mention anything related to the, um, the, the judgment or, or, or anything better based upon one or the other. This was simply God's sovereign way to get it down to 300 men. That's the point. The point is they went from 10,000 to 300. The point is this needs to be a small, weak army, not a powerful one. And by the way, 
The enemy was miles away. It wasn't like they were looking. The, the enemy was still miles away. And the writer of Hebrews tells us in the hall of faith about Gideon in this. Hebrews eleven thirty two through 34. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith, that's the key, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and here's Gideon, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. 300 men were made strong out of weakness, and it came through faith. Not trusting in themselves, but trusting in God. Now, what was the temptation in verse 2? God tells them in verse 2, your temptation, Gideon and Israel, is to trust in your own hand to save you. You're going to say, look what I've done in my own power. But look at verse 7. What does verse 7 say? The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. I will save you. You're not going to save yourself. You're not going to rescue yourself. I will save you. And I'm going to do it in a way that you're not going to understand. I'm going I'm to winnow this down to 300 men. So what's the application for us here? Well, first of all, think about this. Our initial salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, not by works. When you're saved, it's nothing you contribute. God says, I will save you. It's not by your works. It's by grace alone. It's when you come, as Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you come realizing that nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, you bring nothing to the table except for your sin, and you merely trust in what Christ has done. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What do you have that you did not receive? You can't earn your salvation. You don't deserve your salvation. You simply receive it as a free gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of words, so that no one may boast. Salvation, your initial salvation, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by works. You cannot work for your salvation. But there's a second application, and this is just as important. Our ongoing sanctification is also by grace alone through faith alone. You don't get in by grace and then complete it by your own attempts to get in God's good graces. Do I live the Christian life on the treadmill trying to earn my way and get brownie points with God? Do, do I trust in my talents and my abilities and my attempts to appear moral and to be better? Or do we trust in the Holy Spirit and follow Christ in our weakness. I'll ask it again. Is your life marked by prideful independence or humble dependence? Is every minute of your life lived trusting in the power of the Spirit? Because God promises to work in you. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. 
Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation, not work for, work it out with fear and trembling. And what's the promise? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is working in you. Lest we forget, Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. We can all say it together, can't we? We've been memorizing. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our, our dead Jesus, i got to look at it, Lord Jesus, it's been a while, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good for doing his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So God is working in you through the power of the Spirit to walk in obedience. And so Part of trusting in Christ is realizing that your initial salvation is by grace, but your ongoing walk with God is also by grace. And Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians 3, 2 through 3, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What's the answer? By hearing with faith. Are you so foolish? Have you begun by the Spirit, but now you're being perfected by the flesh? Did you start with grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, through the power of the Holy Spirit? Is that how you got in? Yes. Is that how you stay in? Yes. Then why are you trying to do it in your own power, in your own strength? Are you identified by prideful independence or humble dependence? God wants Gideon in the army to be dependent, humble, so they won't boast in their own arms to save them, but will trust in God to save them. Now, God provides, let's look at the second part this morning. God provides assurance for the quote-unquote weak battle plan. God knows Gideon's fearful. So God allows Gideon to eavesdrop on a pagan Midianite soldier who has a weird dream. Okay, you guys ready? Here we go. Verses 9 through 15. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that's on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is none other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all this camp. A pagan Midianite has a dream. Gideon gets to eavesdrop on the dream. Can God, is God that sovereign that he can so orchestrate meticulously events to where Gideon walks in and hears a dream from a pagan Midianite? Yes, God can do that. And why is the dream so absurd? What's going on in this dream? This little tiny piece of bread comes, you know, popping, tumbling through the camp and it hits the tent and knocks it over. A loaf of bread knocks over a tent. 
Now, if you were making a Hollywood blockbuster and you had this group of Midianites that were like locusts, this huge army, what would you assemble to fight against them? I would get the Avengers. Maybe the Transformers. Maybe get some Jedi Knights to come with their X-Wing fighters. I would not send a loaf of bread into the tent. But that's exactly what God's going to do. Now, it's evident by now that Gideon is weak. He needs confidence. He needs reassurance. Okay, if you remember from last week, the first time Gideon needed assurance, remember? God had called him to go deliver the Israelites, and Gideon's like, wait a minute, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go, and I'm going to make a cake, and I'm going to make some soup, and I'm going to bring it back, and, and the angel of the Lord has it catch on fire on that rock. That's the first time. Second time Gideon needs assurance is fleece number one, the wool fleece number one. The fleece is wet, the ground is dry. Third time, the fleece number two, fleece is dry, ground is wet. This is the fourth time that God gives Gideon assurance. Gideon needs to be reassured four times that God's with him. And you may say, now Gideon, get get your act together. God's been pretty clear, but let me just ask you a question. Are we not the same? How often do we lack assurance? How often are we weak? How often do we need to hear God's promises? And I want you to notice how did God receive, or how did Gideon receive the assurance from God that he needed? How did he receive it? Look at verses 9 through 11. How did Gideon receive the assurance he needed? Through the word of God. Arise. Go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. Now, I want you to notice some verb tenses here, okay? So stick with me. Let me ask you a question. Go back to verse 7. Verse 7 says, The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. Now, is that, is that future tense, right? I will save you. I'm going to do this in the future. I'm going I'm to save you. What does verse 9 say? I have given you them. Well, which is it, God? Are you, are you going to do it or have you already done it? And what's the answer? Yes. The grammar of the original language is almost like it's a done deal. God is saying, listen, in my mind, it's such a fixed, sovereign act that I've already done this for you, Gideon. I've already done it. I, I, I promised I will do it, but I've already done it. And so he needs to hear it repeated from the word of God. And then he hears it again from the mouth of a pagan soldier. Look at verse 14. His comrade answered, this is none other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all this camp. Look at verse 15. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. He worshipped. It's the only time in the entire book of Judges that this word shows up, worship. Isn't that kind of scary? Gideon worshipped. It means he bowed down in reverence before the Lord. So here's the the pattern with Gideon. God says, listen, I'm I'm promising to save Israel, and I'm going to use you to do it. 
And Gideon, I know you're weak. I'm going to reassure you on four times that I'm going to do this. And God gives him his solid word, and then Gideon is reassured by that solid word, and then Gideon responds in worship. He was reinvigorated to lead. So let me ask you the question, how do we receive the assurance we need today? It's the same as with Gideon, through hearing the preaching and teaching of God's written word every Lord's Day. That's why it's so important for you to sit continually under expository preaching every Sunday. Because when you come into this place, you may not know it or not, when you come into this place, you come into this place weak at times. You come into this place battered by the world, the flesh, and the devil. You come into this place doubting. You come into this place discouraged. You come into this place fearful. You come into this place anxious. You come into this place with your faith challenged this week. And what do you need? Do you need a scolding from your pastor? No. You need God's word preached in such a way that it penetrates your heart and soul and it gives you that assurance that God is with me. Romans 10, 17 says this, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You need to constantly be hearing the word of Christ preached to bring assurance to your soul. And what's your response to the preached word of God? The same response that Gideon had. Worship. You fall on your face in worship. You humbly bow before God in utter dependence and thankfulness. Again, is your posture one of prideful independence or is your posture one of humble dependence you know when you're on your knees before a holy god that's a sign of humble dependence when you come before god with open hands that's a sign of humble dependence are you bowing down before god have you been strengthened by his word all right let's look at the third part of this passage of scripture the conclusion the battle plan the weak battle plan actually works (laughs) sounds like a weird plan 300 men this dream about a little loaf of barley, a loaf of bread coming and toppling him down. But what has God said to Gideon? I've already done it. I've already done it. Now, there's human responsibility. Gideon's got to go into battle. But you see Gideon's transformation. Gideon for four times has been needed to be reassured. He's a, he's a fearful man. But you see transformation in verse 16. I hope you see it. I want you to see his transformation. I want you to see a, the light bulb come on, the, this Spirit-empowered courage come into Gideon. So let's, let's read the rest of the passage. Let's look at verse 16. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me Then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. 
When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shaddah towards Zarah, as far as the border of Abel Maholah by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from the Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Okay, verse 16. Gideon's been reassured three times. He's been told by God, I'm going to do this. And what does Gideon do? Okay, we're going to do this. Follow my lead. I'm the leader. I'm going to break you up in this ingenious plan. I'm going to break you up into groups of three. So I'm going to break you up 100, 100, 100. And what are our weapons? A trumpet and a jar of oil. But who actually wins the battle? Look at verse 22. Verse 22 tells us who wins the battle. When they blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled. Here's the irony. None of these men had to fight in battle. What do they have to do? Blow a trumpet and and drop a jar and light it on fire and shout. They didn't have to go down in the battle. They didn't have to get close to the battle, what did they do? I hope you notice what they did. Look at verse 21. It's very important. What did they do? Verse 21. Every man stood in his place. Do you get the picture? They stood in the full armor of God while God fought the battle. All they had to do was stand. That reminds me of the famous passage in Ephesians on spiritual warfare. And there's a word that shows up four times in that passage, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to emphasize it for you, okay? So count how many times I tell you. It's four times, okay? It's on your screen. Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to pip, 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 stand. There's number one. Against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to beep, 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 withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet, having put on readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Stand, 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 stand. Four times. We're not called to win the battle. We're called to stand in what God's already won. God has won the battle. You don't go fight in your own power. You don't go fight in your own strength. You put on what God has given you, his full armor, and you stand, and God promises to fight on your behalf. That's what Gideon and his army did. They stood, and God won the battle. Stand. That same word is also used in the New Testament to mean resist. James 4, 7 
Submit yourselves then to God. Resist, the same Greek word, resist, stand against the devil, and he will flee from you. You see, when you stand strong in the full armor of God, you're like those 300 men. You're not trusting in your own arm, your own hand. You're not trusting in yourself. You're trusting in the word of God that promised that he's going to fight the battle, and you stand in that victory already won because God promises to win. And when you stand in the full armor of God, you are demonstrating what? Humble dependence as opposed to prideful independence. You're trusting in the promises of God. Now, I want you to notice two details of how this passage ends. These two weird guys, Oreb and Zeb. Don't name your kids Oreb and Zeb. I didn't think you would, but maybe, maybe you thought you would. So they kill the two princes, Oreb and Zeb. And Oreb is killed on a rock. And Zeb is killed on a wine press. Where do we first find Gideon? Hiding in a wine press. Where did Gideon first get reassured that God was with him? On a rock. It's come full circle here at the end. This weak, hiding nobody named Gideon, who had been reassured four times, is now victorious in battle and the leader that God wants him to be. Not because he did anything in his own power, but God says, I'm going to winnow your army down to 300, and I'm going to show you that I fight the battle, and I get the glory, and the victory is mine. What did verse 2 say? It said verse 2 was the key to the entire chapter. Lest you boast over me and say, my own hand has done this. God in his sovereignty said, I'm not going to let you boast. I'm going to confront your pride. I'm going to challenge your pride. I'm going to winnow you down. I'm going to refine you so that you trust in me. So Israel had to learn to rid themselves of prideful independence so they could rely upon God in humble dependence. And in the end, who gets all the glory? Who's supposed to get the glory? God alone. See, here's the beauty of salvation. I hope you understand this. The glory is all God's but the blessings are all ours. You thought about that? The glory always goes to God, but the blessings go to us. Not because we deserve them. Not because we've earned them. Not because we've done anything spiritual enough to get them. No, salvation from first to last is of the Lord. He chooses to save us because He wants to save us, and He gives us all spiritual blessings in Christ. He gets the glory, we get the blessing. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Meditate upon that for a month of Sundays. Every spiritual blessing we have in Christ. You don't deserve them, but God gives them to you. So what's the condition of your heart today? How do you respond after hearing the word of God preached? How has God reassured you with His powerful promises? Jeremiah 9, 23-24 says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this. Okay, what are we supposed to boast in? That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, 
declares the Lord. Do you boast that you know Jesus? Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. If you're going to boast, boast in the cross. 1 Corinthians 1, 28-31. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. I'm giving you permission to boast. But let's boast in the Lord. Let our boast be that we know Jesus and He knows us. Let us boast in the fact that He has saved us by grace alone. Let us not be marked by prideful independence. But let us leave this place being marked by humble dependence. And as we walk out these doors, let our only boast be, all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. To him belong all the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said what? Amen. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Heaven, we are so prone to take credit, to boast in our achievements, to try to do things in our own power, to draw attention to ourselves. We are many times, Lord, marked by prideful independence. Leave me alone, I can do it. But Lord, as we've seen this morning, the lesson that you taught Gideon in the 300 is the same lesson you want to teach us. The sin of pride needs to be rooted out of our lives, needs to be confronted. And God, you're gracious to do that and and lead us to humble dependence. So Lord, we want to be people that are humble, people that are dependent, people that stand in the full armor of God, people that trust in the power of the Spirit, people that stand in the victory that you've already won for us, and people who boast about you, Jesus. Forgive us for all the times that complaining, negativity, bitterness comes off of our lips instead of boasting about our great Savior. Lord, we want to be excited about you. We want to boast about you. We want people to know about you. We want to talk about you. We want you to be the center of everything in our lives. So Lord, help us to boast in you this week, to draw attention to you, to humbly depend upon you as our all in all. We love you, Jesus, and we know that only through the power of the Holy Spirit can we do this. So Spirit of the living God, fall fresh upon us this week. Give us grace upon grace to walk in this victory, to walk in this freedom, to walk in this dependence, in this humility. We need you every step of the way, Holy Spirit. 
We are desperate without you. To God be the glory, great things he has done. And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus and for your glory alone, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Be the glory because of your steadfast love and faithfulness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.